You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So let's uh, read chapter 12 from about verses 1. I think we'll make it a ways today. We might make it to verse 2. No, I think we're already past that. Let's read through verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. <laughs> and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise <clears throat> and heard inexpressible words, which a, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man will I boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am no, a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and, mirac- and miracles. For in what respect were you treated? What were, for in what respect were you treated as an inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. So this section, as we're looking at it this morning, let's keep a couple of things in mind about visions that the actual apostles had. They didn't brag about them. They didn't use those visions as fodder for their teaching. They may have been instructed by the Lord, but Paul had this vision 14 years ago, and this is the first we've heard of it, and I suspect it was the first that the Corinthian church had heard of it. The idea is Scripture is what we have, the finished work of God in the words of God, to direct us, to guide us, and to lead us into holiness and into all service and into completing the works that God has created for us from time immemorial, it says in Ephesians chapter uh, chapter 2. So Paul had this vision, and, and it, he, he, he delivers it in such a way, he delivers it in the third person to start with, just to draw attention away from himself because of this foolish boasting that seems to be going on. <laughs> when people brag to you about themselves, how does that make you feel? Is it uncomfortable? Don't you know how wonderful I am? Who, who would like to polish my boots today? 
Vince, do you want to do that? You would be correct to say, no, thank you, you idiot. How, do, how does it make you feel when people brag? Paul didn't want to do that. He put everything he could into the Corinthian, into the words of 2 Corinthians here to make certain that the Corinthians knew that bragging, that boasting was unprofitable. But they had forced him into it. <clears throat> they had forced him into revealing his credentials as an apostle, which he shouldn't have had to do with people who knew him well. And so throughout this chapter, which is the, is the, the, the meat, if you will, of his defense of his apostolic commission, <clears throat> he resorts to explaining who he is, what he has done, and how he did it, so that the Corinthians will not make the mistake of comparing him anymore with these false apostles. Someone was pointing out this morning that false teaching has always been a difficulty in the Christian church. And it has always been something that needs to be called out. It has always been something that needs to be stopped, to be crushed, to be step, to be, to be removed from our midst. And so these false teachers were leading people away from Christ. And Paul was horrified at that and troubled. And it, it bothered him greatly. He spent many sleepless nights in prayer. He talks about that earlier. And then, he spends the last part of chapter 11 and the first part of, and the first and most of chapter 12 defending his apostleship, explaining to the Corinthians what they already knew about him, who he was, what he was, and what he represented. So as we continue in this section, last, last week we started the, we started chapter 12, or last two weeks ago, excuse me, we started chapter 12. And he starts out, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and now here's where he just downplays it, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 4, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So now he he begins explaining what happened in this vision. He uses the word that we are familiar with describing the rapture. Paul relates his entry into a place that he was not at liberty to speak about. He didn't write a book about his tourist trip to heaven so that people would lift him up, revere him, think he was just the cat's PJs, whatever that saying really means. Does a cat really wear pajamas? Are there any cat people in here? Do they wear pajamas? Okay, well, then we're going to quit using that one. (laughs) Oh, I guess so, the fur, the fur. He was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So using those words, he uses the word paradise, which is an ancient Persian word which comes from the idea of a walled garden. In order to show great honor to one of his subjects, a Persian king would grant that subject the right to walk with him in his royal garden in in single intimate fellowship. This is very likely a description of Paul walking with the Lord Jesus Christ in paradise. In another demonstration of humility... (coughs) Paul indicates that what he heard in the heavenly places was not permitted to be revealed on earth. 
<laughs> it may be very well, and we don't know all the details here, and it's always unwise to build doctrines on silence. But what we do know is that he says they were not permitted to be spoken. It may very well be that Paul was unable to communicate what he heard because it was so glorious and he had no context by which he could grasp it, reduce it to human language and then tell it to others. Or God reveals what he wants about very, God does reveal what he wants to reveal about heaven in various places in scripture. The rest, the scripture says, are the secret things that belong to him and he keeps them close to himself. The father does. This is another mark of an apostle a careful dearth about speaking of those kinds of things, of the heavens. Those things are reserved to the afterlife, and we need not know about them now other than the information that is vouchsafed to us through Scripture itself. And we know plenty about heaven through the Scriptures, uh, about the fact that it is up, the fact that it is reserved for those who have served the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been elected to salvation, and will spend eternity with him. And it's not, by the way... The hymn that bespeaks to us that it's a place where we sit around clouds with little halos on our head playing harps, um, that isn't in Scripture. <laughs> we will be busy. We will be busy. And I could get into, I've thought about getting into that. Maybe another time we'll get into the, the descriptions of what goes on in heaven and all the things that, that we will, we were, gonna, we're not going to be standing around wondering. We're going to be busy. We're going to be serving the Lord. We're going to be, we won't be serving one another anymore. Did you know that? We won't need to, because you'll be perfect. You'll be able to do everything you need to do to serve the Lord in perfection. And so will I, believe it or not. We will be there eternally serving Christ, serving the Father. And Paul was there. And he says some of the things were not permitted to him to speak about. Men have an inordinate desire to know about heaven, and thus we see many books written on the subject. People who claim to have gone there and come back. The only one we know for sure who went there and came back in this, in the epistles, is Paul himself. And he refuses to give any details. And that should be instructive to us. This should be a warning to those who would falsely claim that they have traveled to the glories and back. If someone did... And I'm not saying anyone ever has or ever will since the time of the apostles. They would not reveal any more than Paul did. They would be true to the scriptural injunction, and they would not be re- revealed any more than Paul did. Jim, what's the title of your book? Well, you know, the one related to this. Stairway. Selling the Stairway to Heaven. If you're interested, there's an excellent book I can recommend right back here in the back. Selling the Stairway to Heaven, Heavenly Tourism. Uh, going there, punching your ticket, stepping out of the turnstile, visiting all the things, and then come back and telling a whole bunch of stories. And that's indeed what they are. They are stories, and they're false stories. So Paul went to heaven. He went to paradise. And how do we know it was Paul? Well, we'll get to that. He's still speaking in the third person. So in 2 Corinthians, we'll, we'll, we'll move on with chapter 12, verse 5. On behalf of such a man, I will boast... But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Referring to himself in the third person again, Paul refuses to continue boasting. He rather contemplates and speaks of his weaknesses. Remarkably, Paul does not want people to form an opinion of him based on visions and such. He would rather they take him as he is and look to the scriptures for the vision of God, the vision of God that they need. He again refers to weaknesses 
hearing his desire to speak of those rather than of any great things he might have done. How difficult would it have been for people to verify Paul's revision, his vision, his the vision he just spoke of? Would it be easy? It would be, for frankly, virtually impossible. When someone claims to have had a vision, they're the only witness to that vision. And Paul was the only witness. He knew that. He knew that it was, it was improper to call attention to that in this, in this venue, in this way. But they can quickly, and we can, quickly look to the scripture and see the truth there and have their lives and our lives forever changed by it. <clears throat> we don't need visions. We have the finished word of God, which is sufficient for everything, everything that we will encounter in this life. Now, no, it doesn't teach the quadratic equation, but it does teach everything that is necessary for living a life that is in, that in service to God. Chapter 12, verse 6. For I, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Here's why he wouldn't speak of that vision. Paul wants people to credit him with no more than they see in him or that what they hear from him. He refrains from boasting, especially about the visions, but rather speaks of those things which God has put into the Scriptures and has given to him through inspiration. Unlike the false apostles who made up the things that they fooled the Corinthians with, this thing, Paul's vision, really happened. It really happened. But Paul would rather not talk about it. He would rather have the Corinthians credit him with no more than what they see in him or what they hear from him regarding the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. His faithfulness to the word of God... His godly life and those things, those things were what mattered most to him. Not the intermittent visions that God might have given him as an apostle. This is not to say that they were not important, for they most certainly were important. But Paul, knowing that this was not something that occurred regularly and was limited to those whose task it was to bring the new revelation, downplayed the visions he had. He boasted of Christ and of the grace of God, that God worked in his life daily. Any questions or comments about those two verses before we move on? Five and six. Verse seven. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, of the revelations, for this reason to keep me, now he's not speaking in the third person anymore, now he's speaking in the third, first person, and we know who it was that had this vision, who it was that went to heaven, who it was that saw things he was not permitted to speak about, who it was that would rather the Corinthians looked at him and his words and his life rather than these visions. Because of the surpassing greatness of this revel- of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Even Paul the apostle could fall prey to pride. And I say even because we tend to emulate the apostles, and rightly we should in in many respects. But in reality, they were men who put on their togas one arm at a time, or whatever it was they wore back then, who were prey. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. Remember, Paul had to deal with Peter uh, when he was 
not as welcoming to the Gentiles as he should have been early on in the book of Acts. Everybody makes mistakes. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity, are perfect. (laughs) When God brings great revelation to one of his servants, even the best of them can fall prey to arrogance and pride. For Paul, this was the greatness of the revelations that God gave to him. For this reason, it appears that Paul was given a thorn to prevent him from succumbing to the smugness that comes when one knows for certain, one knows something for certain that others do not. (laughs) When you know something that nobody else knows, it's kind of cool, isn't it? I know something you don't know. (laughs) Whether it's, it's a good thing or a bad thing. But everyone can fall prey to that kind of arrogance that comes with that. Whether it is a genuine inspiration, as the New Testament writers received, or modern-day understanding by properly interpreting a section of Scripture, men can become convinced that they are the best there are, best there is. Over the centuries, there has been much conjecture, by the way, about this thorn. The word is a translation of the Greek word stake. From the earliest times, the debate has been whether it was metaphorical or physical, this thorn in the flesh. Tertullian thought it was an earache. Anybody have an earache, a really bad earache that would, that can really, really drive you from sleep and just torment you terribly? I, I when I first read this, I thought, <laughs> earache. And then I remembered that, uh, when I was growing up, one of my brothers had earaches that he just, it just, it was like he thought something was in his head, poking his brain. So earaches, it could have been an earache. Tertullian thought it was. Christ of Stone believed it was a headache. Calvin ascribed it to spiritual temptation, and Luther believed it was the opposition and persecution that Paul faced. Later commentators have suggested eyesight problems, epilepsy, or some form of a malarial disease. Many draw parallels to Galatians chapter 4, where it says in verses 13 and 14, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So the indication there might very well be that whatever it was, it, it had a horrible look, whatever it was. It, it could have been an eye issue. Um, I, I've seen some, I was looking at some pictures and then I thought, I put some up there and I thought, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, you can look them up pictures of of terrible eye issues, elephantiasis, things like that, the things that malarial diseases can cause. Um, they They can render your appearance frightening, actually, to be sure. So, um, it was, there were a number of people who think it was that. The fact is, we do not have enough detail to spec, speculate as to the exact nature of this goad. It is my impression that it was something genuinely physical based on the Greek term, Used in context, we can, however, understand that God will often bring difficulties specifically designed to humble those of his servants who are to be especially especially effective for him. It is very easy to be caught up in our own supposed greatness. If one ever becomes effective at something, the temptation to make sure other people know about their effectiveness is very great and very difficult to deal with. And we can all succumb to it, fall prey to it. And question. Or statement? No. I was asking because Josh raised the question. Yeah. 
I just saved you guys a painful death. No. I have to repeat that. The question was asked. Uh, do I really want to repeat this? The question was asked if it was possible that it was a wife that was the thorn in the flesh. And my emphatic answer was no. No dear, right, right, dear? <laughs> she may be watching this someday. <sighs> Whatever it was, it's instructive to us to know that many times God will bring into our lives things that he will not remove. And it is not because he doesn't care for us or he has missed something. It is because precisely that he cares both for us and for those who are the recipients of the things that we are doing so that we will remain humble. Humility brings grace, but pride goes before a fall for everyone. No one is accepted from that. No one. <clears throat> Wife, you guys, you're too much. <clears throat> How easy is it, though, to become good at something and to really want to make sure everybody else knows just how good you are. I know probably none of you have fallen prey to that. But I can say that I have. And it's, and it's, it's especially humbling. Especially when you come to the, find out that there's somebody too that's much, much better at it than you are. Uh, those are always, but let's go ahead and be humble so that we don't have to be humiliated. Remember that God gives us the gifts. The Father of lights gives the gifts that he will use to build his church. And those gifts are expressed through your lives, through our lives together and individually. Any other comments other than weird ones about verse 7? Verse 8. Concerning this, I just rolled over and played dead, Paul says. No. I implored, I begged, I supplicated, I prayed, I cried out, I wrestled, I lost sleep over this. I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking God for those kinds of things to leave, to be removed. Paul did it. This is an excellent opportunity to see that prayer to God to remove a difficulty in, one life, in one's life is perfectly biblical. The question is, what will you do? What will one do when they realize that God has ordained this and it is not going away? And there are, I see nodding heads. There are people in this audience who know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been given a difficulty. And you maybe didn't do anything, Peter. Did you have a question? Okay. You maybe didn't, in your mind, do anything to receive, to justify that difficulty. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did. That's not the point. The point is... How are we going to deal with those things God allows into our lives? And, and we're going to see how Paul dealt with it. Christ himself implored, begged, sought the Father three times, as recorded in Matthew chapter 26, about going to the cross. Upon recognizing that the will of God was to continue, he went forth to the cross. We will see that Paul follows the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ to, as well. Please notice as well that there were no hedges prayed, no binding of Satan, just a simple prayer to the Father three times to remove the difficulty. And the Father's answer to Paul was explicit. Verse 9, and he has said to me, this is a beautiful verse when you think it through. 
There's, there's, if there's a best verse in Scripture this week, this is it. This is the best book in Scripture, because we're studying it right now. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. My grace will meet the need. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather, Paul says, boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it was something given to Paul by the Father of lights down from heaven, from whom comes only good gifts. Do you believe that? When the car's new and and when the house doesn't have any mold, we believe that. But it's when the difficulties come that it becomes more difficult for anyone to believe that. But all gifts that come down from the Father of lights are good gifts. This was a tool that the Lord used in Paul's life to make him more effective, more productive, and of course, more humble. In the grace that God brought to Paul, that grace was sufficient for everything Paul needed, including surviving this difficulty. Now, I use the word survive um, in an informed way here. So, this is the word, to be possessed of unfailing strength, to be strong, to be suffice, suffice, to be enough. With the difficulty, the Father will bring enough grace not to survive, but we're going to see what, what he brings that grace for. He brings the grace to overcome. And I forgot to write these scriptures down. Romans 8, probably about from chapter 8, from around the late 20s, 28 on. Oh, heavens, I've got a Bible right here. What stoppeth me from looking it up? That That's the culmination, but... But uh, And that is, all things do work together for good. But let's just look at this for a second. Or for a minute. We always say second when we actually meant four days. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is verse 37. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grace of God doesn't provide enough energy, enough strength to survive. It provides what you need to overwhelmingly conquer, to overwhelmingly conquer. So that the grace that the Father rained down upon Paul throughout his life through the work of the Holy Spirit was exactly what was necessary to meet every need. It is the same for us. God's grace is sufficient, is strong, is satisfactory, provides the correct and perfect assistance and wards off what needs to be warded off. It is exactly what we need every day. What was Paul's response? And this is what I found so very instructive to us. He said, okay, Lord, if that's the way it's got to be, I'll trudge along with this thorn sticking out of my side. I'll make sure everybody sees it. What do you think of the blood? Yeah. And I'll make sure that everybody feels sorry for me. That is not what Paul said. He said this. Once I find it here.
What was Paul's response? He said, I am glad about this, and I will boast about the weaknesses, especially the one that required this infusion of grace, so that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ may dwell in me and make me what I need to be for service for him, and so that others will see that he is a God of overcoming. And he has done this in my life. When faced with the opportunity to have the thorn removed but lose the power, Paul chose to keep the thorn and gladly, joyfully. That's what the word means. I will joyfully keep it. He learned indeed that the true power of the Lord Jesus Christ is most evident in weak servants who acknowledge their weakness and depend upon God for everything. The wonderful fact is that God's word, without any help from any man-made source, is sufficient for every need. Psychological, mental, spiritual, and the wisdom found therein is sufficient to deal with all the issues of life. Any questions or comments about that? Have you found it to be sufficient? Amen. Now, the older you get, the more things that break, and the more you find the sufficiency. When you're young, sometimes... Everything's working and going well, although young folks have difficulties too. I don't mean it that way. I didn't mean it disrespectfully in that way. But as, as life progresses and the difficulties come and you see God come through every time, you begin to have a, a, a sense that the Scripture has really spoken true, always has, always will. But here he says, I'm content, verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we'll probably finish up here. But the Greek word translated well content could have been, how does this thing know my battery is running low? Yeah, now you know my battery's running low. <laughs> That's one of the distresses in my life. There's a low-running battery. The word translated well-content could have been translated pleased or delighted. The mature saint of God understands that the difficulties of life reveal character and also reveal needed changes where character is lacking. Is there anybody in here that thinks that they've done, developed it all the way, that you are, you're 100%? When you step into heaven, it's going to just be like stepping from one room of your house into another. (laughs) Let me disabuse you of that notion. We should work, and the Holy Spirit is working, to make it so that when we step into heaven, the change is small. But for me, it's going to be a wrenching blow. Paul was delighted and well-content to have these difficult, and all mature saints will recognize that God brings these things into life to, both to develop character and to reveal character that needs change. So Paul had to deal with the weakness that that is frailty, possibly caused by disease, insults. These were the words meant to cause genuine, these are things meant to cause genuine hurt. The Greek word is where we get the word hubris. You know what hubris means? When someone has hubris, they're really caught up in themselves, so much so that they feel they can put you in your place because they're the best at doing that because they know everything. They're perfect, especially in the area that they're dealing with you in. And they use that hubris to put you in your place. That's the Greek word. He had to deal with distresses, which were great needs that he had, sustenance, protection, and possibly some of the most important things in life like sleep and health. I... I, 
I have never had a problem with sleep. I, I pray for people that have that, that can't get enough sleep. It's a, it's a difficult and trying thing. But it, it seems like a simple thing, but it's one of the very most important things. There are, these are, there's, these are distresses Paul dealt with regularly. He also had to deal with persecutions, and many of those have been detailed here and in the book of Acts. He also had to deal with difficulties. This word translates the Greek word for calamity. It's almost an understatement, at least in the translation here. Anguish or distress. This isn't, you know, the light's not coming on again. Oh, I gotta flip this breaker. That's not what he's talking about. It's the light's not coming on, but the house is on fire. Maybe that's why. That's what he's talking about. It's a calamity. It's a distress. He wasn't losing his car keys. This is having the car stolen and then someone trying to run him over with it. <clears throat> Paul's response to this thorn is our template for dealing with the persecutions and difficulties that come into our lives that God allows to stay. It is when people observe, it is when people observe us in dire straits, still serving, still humble, still loving, still caring, still trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, that they realize that Christianity is different. It is then that they may, by God's calling, seek him. That may be what he uses. That's something to consider. Paul further sums this up in his letter to the Romans where we are reminded, and this is where I actually put this in. I got ahead of myself and stole my own thunder. I do that often. Paul further sums this up in his letter to the Romans where we are reminded that not only can we survive the difficulties of life, rather one who recognizes Christ as their all in all can conquer, win, overcome, and thrive. And I'm going to read Romans 8, 36 through 39 again, because it's more important than anything I have to say to you today. Just as it is written, for your sake we are, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He covered them all. There is nothing that will happen to you in this life as a child of God that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And is not that the most important not thing not to be separated from? Everything else, like they say, is just details. And I don't mean to minimize the difficulties that are going on in your life. But everything else besides this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity is just details. And so he finishes up, well, he doesn't finish up, but verse 11, and then we'll quit. You thought I was going to quit at 10. (laughs) Bait and switch. For I, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Where... When a good man or woman is maligned and Christians who know better about that person sit in silence, they have committed a sin of inaction. Paul is still communicating to the Corinthians the foolishness of self-aggrandizement because he says he's a nobody. The Corinthians knew Paul well enough that when he was accused by the false apostles, they should have loudly risen to his defense By any estimation, he was as important as Peter, John, James, and the other founding apostles of the New Testament church. Although Paul has both the authority and the ability 
of the commission of the apostle of the of the commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is still fully and painfully aware of his own abilities and his need to rely upon God for any effectiveness that might occur in his life. He wasn't inferior to the eminent apostles, but he knew about his need to rely on God. <clears throat> if a Christian knows that false accusations have been made against a brother or sister in Christ, and he does nothing, that is a sin. He should look into them, talk to the accused, find out what is going on, and then take some action, If even if it is simply spreading the information that the accusations are false. The problem today is that it's so easy to gossip because you can do it online with a few strokes of a keyboard. It used to be more difficult to gossip. Gossip's always been bad. One guy related it, uh, a woman, who, uh, he was talking to a woman who was struggling with, with uh, her mouth. Her, it was a, in this particular case, it was a woman, but men are just as prone, so don't, don't misunderstand this. How do you do, how do you deal with it? And he took her to the uh, summit of a little, a little hill, and he said, I want you to cut open this feather pillow and then fling it to the wind. So she did, and he said, now go gather up all the feathers. That's how you deal with, that's what happens when people gossip. You can't gather up all of the feathers. But when a brother is being gossiped about, and we find out about it, and we find out that the accusations are false, then we need to do something about it. And Paul should have had people in the Corinthian church, and maybe there were, we don't have record of that. I'm kind of hoping we're going to find out that there were some who went, no, that's not the Paul I know. And they may have been shouted into silence at some point, but at least they, I'm hoping that there were some that spoke up. James chapter 4, verses 7, verse 7 says this, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So now, although that was in the context of refraining from boasting about any days to come, it applies to these kinds of areas in our lives. The worst kind of malignment misstatement about you or me is one that is not true and is the most difficult to be borne by one who is innocent of the charges. It is good for us to come properly and carefully and scripturally to the defense of our brothers and sisters in Christ when they are improperly spoken of. And Paul says that here. Actually, I should have been commended by you. There should have been some in the body who said, no, you're not talking about the Paul I know. The Paul I know brought the word of God to us. The Paul I know suffered shipwreck. He was beaten with rods. He was left for dead. And he continued to get up and, and spread the word of God to the churches of Achaia and of all of the known world. That's the Paul I know. You guys are talking about a different person. Don't talk about him like that. And they should have been fearless in their defense of him. But apparently it was not so. And so I'm, I'm, I, just, I guess I'm saying we should not let it be so in our lives. So that when we know a brother or sister has been falsely aligned and we can spend some time with them, find out the details, come to their defense, be their brother and sister in Christ. Before I close, are there any comments or about this idea especially? But it's always a good idea to check with them. Maybe this is the one time they did something they shouldn't have done and you don't want to be out defending something that did happen against something that did happen. But it requires relationships. It requires spending time with one another. It requires getting to know and... Yes, Peter. 
it's in, um, you know, I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to find the scripture in my head. It's in there somewhere. But a so-called brother who commits the kinds of things that have been, that can be verified that are fornication, the, the lists of sins, that is someone who we disassociate with. And we need to, we can't, we can't eat with them. Paul says we can't eat with them. And in those days, that was important. Eating together was a sign of communion, more than just, more than it is today, I think. So if there, if, if a brother is difficult, or excuse me, is guilty of, and you can verify committing those kinds of sins, then that's, it's time to break with them. It, read it for me. First Corinthians 5.11, that's the one, I would have been way off. I was thinking it was in chapter 7. But uh, <laughs> yes, First Corinthians 5.11. And that is a partial list, but that's a good list uh, for those of you who like to put pin things on your refrigerator. But what is it, who does it referring to? Is it referring to an unbeliever? It's referring to probably an unbeliever, but a so-called brother. This is someone who claims to be a child of God and who is doing those things. With that one... For sure, disassociate yourself. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.